HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Today's program was brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, the brand new co-working space in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Learn more at 100bogart.com. My name is Hannah Forden. I'm the membership coordinator at Heritage Radio Network, but even before I joined the team, I loved listening to HRN during my subway commute. It made the time go quickly and left me feeling inspired for the day ahead. HRN listeners tune in from all over the world, but there are a few traits that we all have in common, no matter where we listen from. A curious palate, the fierceness to make a difference, and a hunger for lifelong learning about the culinary world. As you know, Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported nonprofit. To deliver the most ambitious, entertaining, and of-the-moment stories in 2018, we need your help. We need to raise $150,000 by December 31st to accomplish these goals and to keep your favorite shows on the air. Together, we can make this HRN's most exciting, impactful, and delicious year yet. Become a member by donating today. Join us at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate, and you'll immediately start enjoying benefits such as VIP invitations to HRN events, where you will mix and mingle with your favorite hosts. Memberships also make a perfect holiday gift for all the foodies in your life. This year, why not give the gift of food radio? You'll hear your generosity in action for the year to come. Help keep our lights on and our mics hot by pledging your support today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for listening. Welcome to HRN Happy Hour. It's five o'clock somewhere and somewhere is Bushwick. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of Heritage Radio Network. My co-host Kat is out this week. She's having a wonderful time in Paris. I'm sure she really misses us. I'm really glad, though, that we still have our stalwart engineer, Dave Tatashore, in the booth to back us up. Thank you, Dave. You got it. And uh, we also have our amazing Julia Child fellow, Jordan Werner, here in studio with us to help me welcome today's incredible guest, Sandy Lerner. Thanks, Jordan. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to help. Uh, Sandy is the co-founder of Cisco Systems, the maker of the first commercially viable router that allowed computers to network to one another. 
As the first female philanthropist to emerge from the boom era of Silicon Valley, she's gone on to fund multiple animal welfare projects, including Gentle Harvest and the cosmetics company we know and love, Urban Decay. We're so happy to have you here, Sandy. Thank you. So before we jump into our interview with Sandy to tell us all about her beginnings on a California cattle farm to becoming one of the greatest businesswomen of history, we start with our usual rapid-fire headlines. Then we'll give you guys a quick recap of our Winter in the Garden fundraiser that happened this past Monday, and we'll proceed with our interview with Sandy, and finally wrap it up, as always, with some happy hour trivia. All right, David, news music, please. So this week on Cutting the Curd, they hosted their annual holiday special, Drunk Cheese Stories. Tune in and get into that cheesy holiday spirit. And on Tuesday's The Line, we heard from Brian Dayton, the co-owner of Oak at 14th in Boulder and Acorn and Brider in Denver. Not only is he a master sommelier and graduate of the Beverage Alcohol Resource Program, Brian's restaurants and cocktails have also been covered by Bon Appetit, Details, Vanity Fair, Imbibe, GQ, and The Wall Street Journal. Cooking Issues this week revealed that they love big bunts and they cannot lie. You can also listen in to hear Dave and Nastasia talk about the Searsall, Pez dispensers, cocktail gift ideas, rancidity in nuts, methicel meringues, and more. Then Andrea Ween on Meant to be Eaten chats with two women well-versed in the realms of cultural appropriation, culinary colonialism, and food sovereignty. Salil Ho, a writer, chef, and co-host of podcast Racist Sandwich, joins HRN's own, very own Kimberly Chow, co-host of Recommended Reading with Food Book Fair, to determine if recent food activist movements have achieved their goals. And finally, this week on Speaking Broadly, Dana Cowan happily welcomed TV Land's younger entourage and Goodfellas star Debbie Mazar, and she told us how to Tuscanize our lives. Mazar talked about her Tuscan husband, Gabriele Corcos, and their new book, Super Tuscan, as well as her life with friends Madonna, Keith Haring, and more. So that's our headlines for this week. That sounds a lot like my life, actually. <laughs> yeah, you know, just hanging out with Madonna. A lot, a lot of parallels. Yeah. You know. um, well, you know, our, our subsequent show uh, host, Cynthia Malloran, also likes to hang out with Madonna. So one of these days, we will be uh, in those circles as well. Um, one thing that I'm really, really happy to bring an update on this week, though, is um, as you heard at the top of the show, we are in the midst of our end-of-year fundraising drive and a big component of that this year was our first annual Winter in the Garden Gala that took place at the Yellow Magnolia Cafe and the Palm House at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. And uh, we're still sort of recovering. That was a huge <laughs> event on Monday night. But I don't know, Jordan, how do you think it went? Oh, man, that space, let me first of all say, is one of the most beautiful places we could have thrown a party in New York City. Yeah. <laughs> we were there for two days setting up and... No matter what time of day it was, it was stunning. Like, beautiful, light, bright light all day. And then when Cynthia turned on the lights and bumped up the music, it was just like a whole different experience. It was awesome. I had such a blast. Uh, we had a VIP hour where we had some past French 75s and oysters. And then uh, so many bites around the room. We had 12 food stations um, including w one thing that I've been hearing just rave reviews about was the Filipino ceviche from Amboy oh. from Alden Kylan was so good. 
Uh, we had an incredible cheese fondue with our very own Michael Harlan Turkel and um, Brian Lycano from um, Acme, also with uh, Zaro's Pane Nero to dip into that um, incredible fondue with that Emirat Gruyere cheese. It was so delicious and um, it was just really fun to look back on the year and celebrate uh, all the people who came together to make that possible uh, the, just the absolute best thing about Heritage Radio Network is we have all these shows every week, so we have our network of hosts, but then we also have incredible guests who join us on the air and all of our listeners, and um, sometimes we feel a little bit like we speak into the void doing internet radio, and so it's really gratifying when we can see the faces on the other side of that. So it was just an absolute joy. Huge thank you to all the chefs who were able to participate in that and donated their time and food. Thank you to the Patina Group and TD Bank for partnering with us on the event. And thanks everybody who attended and imbibed with us and bid on our silent auction generously and played our wine ring toss game. It was just an epic night and we all can't wait to do it again. Um, so thanks everybody. It's really, really fun. Really um, fun. And bringing us that much closer oh. to our end of your goals. I know. Could I like gush a little bit more about it? But really, uh, it was just absolutely humbling to see it come together. So, um, yeah, just delighted that that came all together so quickly. So I want to lead in now to our interview segment. We're so, so fortunate to have Sandy Lerner with us today. Sandy, thank you again for being here. You're welcome. Um, so, Sandy, you have an incredibly impressive and diverse resume. So you founded Cisco Systems, and I would love to know about your background and what you know the initial story was that led you into that career path and then where you've taken that since with Urban Decay and now as a farmer industrialist. Um, it's probably not what anybody would think. I grew up on a I like to call it a rock farm in the in the Sierra Nevada mountains. A um, whole lot of rocks, not much water, and not much grass. And um, after our family pear farm um, succumbed to the mono monocultural or what is it uh, pear blight, our county went in one year from being kind of an average working class farming California county to being the second poorest county in California, um, so much for monoculture. And um, it was just really clear to me by the time I got out of high school that farming in California was probably not a good career path. Um, you know, I did the whole thing in 4-H and the rest of it for, for years and years and loved it and loved my cows. And um, when I went to school, um, college, you know, it was the Vietnam War and things were very unsettled and it was a, a tough time, I think, to be a kind of a socially conscious aware kid. It was it was a it was a very kind of angry place, California and a lot of um, a lot of pulls on a lot of different people and the agriculture group was kind of to one side and the political group was kind of to another side and I think I sort of ended up like a deer in the headlights in the middle, kind of being pulled in a bunch of different ways. But the good thing was I think I had a pretty open mind. And um, at the end of my college two years, um, the computer had kind of come to the fore. And I looked around and decided, well, heck, if I can't do what I want to do, what are people going to pay me for? And at that point, it was computer programming. 
1975, I was making $25 an hour. And wow. I thought, well, you know, if you don't get to do what you want, you might as well at least get, get to live kind of comfortably. And um, that eventually would get me into Stanford because those skills at that time were still very much kind of in bits and pieces and not not altogether that common. Um, and Stanford was one of the places that the Department of Defense had chosen to, to do its early some of its um, early internet research, and the rest is Cisco and history. How many women were in your cohort at Stanford doing this kind of research? Well, I don't know if I had a cohort. Um, Stanford in the late 70s and into the early 80s was a very unusual place. I think MIT probably looked a lot the same, and the joke was that there were males and non-males. Mm-hmm. Um, I was usually the only non-male in the in the math and computer science classes. Every once in a while, there would be another non-male, um, but not not really. And what was it like in the early days? And, and tell us about the very beginnings of Cisco and how you became involved. Um, again, I think it's probably not what anybody thinks, and the urban legends around it get a little perverted. But the Internet had actually existed since about 1978. We're talking about 10 years later when um, the project at Stanford really started started going. And so there's really nothing, I think, that we would claim that we invented all of that work um, in terms of the, the protocols and, and most of the, the transmission definition had had gone before, what hadn't happened was any commercialization. In 1978 or 79, Stanford, at that point, the local area network was 5,000 computers. And if you go back that far, that's quite a lot of computers. And the nice thing about Stanford is right across the street was um, HP Labs, and down the road a bit was IBM Research and you know Fairchild Semiconductor and a lot of other places that had a lot of a lot of computers, and so our local area networks were a pretty good modeling um, basis for doing what later became wide area networks, or or networks of networks, or internet works, shortened to be the internet. And at Stanford, we developed um, a very cost-effective because we were really the government in exile. Um, the university had as its main network platform, a big IBM system and a broadband thing that I think was doomed, but they kept pouring money in it. What they didn't pour was money in, money in our direction, and so we, of course, had to develop a very cost-effective solution, and we did, and um, the university wasn't interested in it, and other companies in the area, such as Bridge and 3Com, weren't interested in it, and we got asked, well, why would anybody want to have an internet? Why? Why? <laughs> we said, well, because it's just really a good thing. <laughs> they didn't, just trust me. <laughs> yeah, it's like when you have one, you'll want one. You know. Um, so we, with tears on our eyes, just said, "Well, hell, we've got to do this because we're academics." And the main players at that point in the DoD research were were universities. There were some labs, like HP Labs, uh, was a big one. Um, mostly, it was university or university-related organizations. And so we said, this is public money, and 
um, we're very offended that we're not going to be allowed to pursue this technology because all of these universities and public places have taken all this money and we need to make this available. And so with tears in our eyes and $5, we went to the California Secretary of State's office and started Cisco and said, I guess you'll have to sue us. Wow. And did they? Um, they tried. Yes, yes, they did. Um, but there's a probably more of a story than you want right here and there. Um, <laughs> yes, they did. It, it didn't work, um, mainly because Stanford couldn't really run their network without us. And it all ended up very amicable and us with professions of love on both sides, and uh, they left us alone, and we sold them internet working equipment. That's absolutely amazing. So then, this is a food show, so we're getting to that, but I'm fascinated now how you made the transition from co-founding Cisco to then um, Urban Decay. What happened there? You know, I think if you look at the things that I've done from really the very beginnings of my life, it's always been things that needed to be done. Um, Len and I really enjoyed our lives at Stanford. We weren't really looking to make a bazillion dollars. I mostly, my goal in my professional life was not to be poor. I'd been poor, and it's no dang fun. So I just wanted to have a nice, comfortable life, and Len and I had great jobs at Stanford, and we were really happy. And we found Cisco because the university, in its infinite wisdom, was not disposed at that time to allow anybody to um, manufacture or make available the networking technology that, as a an ARPA project, many of the colleges and universities and research labs had all been a, very much a, a part of. And Urban Decay was the same way. Um, you know, I was turning 40, and my aunt looked at me, and she says, Kit, you're going to turn 40. And I said, yeah, thanks, thanks, I, I needed to hear that. She says, you know, you got to lose the t-shirt and jeans. By the way, you could use some makeup. And I didn't need to hear that either. Um, but I really loved her, and I thought she was very smart and very elegant. And so I went and thought, okay, I'll go look at makeup. And, you know, in the 90s, it was still pretty pink. And I'm just not a pink girl. I've never been a pink girl. And no matter how much of that stuff you slathered on me, I wasn't going to look like Christy Brinkley, more's the pity. Um, I'd love to look like Christy Brinkley. I just don't. Um, you know, I th thought it wasn't much to ask being five foot ten and blonde, but apparently it was, and I'm not. Um, so I just decided that, well, if I have to do this for the rest of my life, I'm, I'm at least not going to hate it. I'm going to have some fun, and um, it's going to be a good thing. And mostly, I decided I, you know, everybody I think wants to look nice, and everybody probably wants to look better if they could, but I just wanted to look more like me. I didn't want to look like anybody else. Um, and so there just wasn't any alternative at that point in the marketplace. And so I felt that there needed to be and, and true to my sort of waiting in kind of in blissful ignorance um, and without doing even a modicum of looking as to how much of my personal life and effort it would take, I just kind of waited in and before I knew it, we had urban decay. Wow. It's amazing because I'm just sitting here thinking about like these products that I have in my home, uh, you know, my Cisco router and my Urban Decay <laughs> cosmetics. But so in addition to these incredible accomplishments, you um, have been for the last 20 years, you've been a sustainable, certified organic and humane heritage breed farmer at Ayrshire Farms in Virginia. So 
tell us about the need you saw there that led you to uh, become a farmer and to focus your life around the heritage breeds and organic farming. You know, again, I think it's maybe not as interesting as it seems like it ought to be. Um, I was just kind of living in the Bay Area because, I guess, just by default. Um, you know, I'd been there for 17 years and, you know, the Stanford, Cisco kind of days, and all of a sudden it dawned on me, like, I don't really have to be here. And I started thinking about it, you know, after, after the second three-year drought, where a drought in California means no rain. It doesn't mean less rain. It means no rain. And I thought, you know, the second 7.0 earthquake, what am I doing here? I said, I could go someplace else. And I'd been jousting, and I found out that Maryland State Sport was jousting, and I decided I could go live on a farm. And at that point, I'd been a vegetarian for the better part of 30 years, Um, not because I believe that we're not evolved to eat meat. We have teeth that show that we are. But because um, I just had found out when I was kind of leaving 4-H and entering college about this horrifying kind of thing that had grown up without my knowledge called factory farming. And I was, you know, I, I used to do my homework on my on my cows. You know, they would lay down and they would give me kisses when I asked for it. And the idea that people would somehow brutalize the animals that made their food was so repugnant that I just thought, you know, I have so few dollars that I'm certainly not going to give any of my money to, to this food system. Mm-hmm. This is horrifying and wrong. So... I decided, well, you know, I could go back to farming and I could show people that, you know, you could raise good food animals in a kind and responsible way to the animal and to the environment, and you could make really good food and you don't have to buy this stuff that is all tortured and horrible in the grocery store. And so that's what I started doing, once again, just because it seemed like somebody needed to do it. And once again, I didn't really think enough about the amount of time and energy and money and um, hard work it was going to be, and um, just started doing it 20 years ago. When did you become certified organic? We were first certified by the Virginia Department of uh, Agriculture, and that was because that was three years before 2002 in 1999. Uh, 2002 was actually the first year of the National Organic Program when the federal program superseded the states. I bought my farm in 1996, and um, pretty generically, there's about a three-year transitional window uh, where you have to demonstrate that you followed um, organic principles, no pesticides, no herbicides, no um, subtherapeutic antibiotics, no artificial growth hormones or other stimulants. And so we started right away um, that fall in 1996 and were certified organic by Virginia in 1999 and then uh, went and transitioned immediately into the national program in 2002. So were you one of the first certified organic, USDA organic meat producers? You know, I, I don't know that. I would have to assume we were a very early one Mm -hmm. because it's certainly much easier to grow vegetables than it is to, you know, grow especially the large animals. Uh, But I I don't know that. I do know that the farm was the first certified organic humane farm in Virginia, Um, and I doubt that there were were many others. Tell us about the humane certification. Well, it's, again, something that (laughs) gets a little bit more bizarre than you think that it ought to, but the U.S. is the only 
country in the world that has an organic program, an organic certification process that does not involve any kind of humane regulation. And it defies logic, it defies common sense, it probably even defies reason and certainly defies any notion of ethics, but it is what it is. Um, when you go to the other places like Europe and Japan and um, you know the Australia and the other South Seas area, they all seem to feel that organic and animal husbandry are very closely linked. Um, here, of course, because of the amount of control that um, the agricultural cartel has on the various parts of the government, in my opinion, um, we managed to have a national organic program without any kind of humane regulation. So what's happened is there's kind of been a scramble, um, and it's divided itself, I think, in kind of a bifurcation. Immediately, there started to be like the United Egg Producers had their um, own humane label, which since the United Egg Producers was doing it, you can draw your own conclusions. Um, you know, and other sorts of labels and... Um, large food chains would say, well, because it's ours, we declare it's humane. Um, there's only one, uh, in my view, real humane certifying organization, certainly that's ISO, ISO qualified and recognized um, as such by the government, and that's Humane Farm Animal Care. And we started with them right when they started. They spun off, um, Adele Douglas spun out of uh, HSUS when they stopped funding the program, and we immediately just jumped on the bandwagon and became, um, had the first organic certified restaurant in 2001 and the first certified humane um, butcher shop uh, 2004. So wow. we've, we've been um, very early on that, on that program as well. And the, the first certified organic restaurant is Hunter's Head in Upperville, Pennsylvania, correct? Upperville, Virginia. Upperville, Virginia. I can't <laughs> read my own writing. And then the um, the company is Gentle Harvest. Can you tell us about that? Um, we had a number of different ways that we wanted to position the food off the farm. And we originally, because there were so few organic, fewer humane um, farm partners, um, ended up supplying our butcher shop, which was originally called Home Farm Store, and the restaurant Hunter's Head, mostly from the farm. But the restaurant's been open now over 16 years, and the butcher shop kind of morphed into a larger, more sort of grocery store, kind of not specialty store, meat store, which we rebranded under the, the term Gentle Harvest. And we now have a large cadre and a growing cadre of um, partner farms, and we are attempting in a very vertically integrated way to utilize 20 years of experience to kind of try to help people get their organic food and their humanely raised um, food animals to market and get better prices for them. I just noticed... Uh, couple days ago that farm gate prices declined seven seven percent last year wow and you know when you look at the statistics about what's happening to farmers you know losing one percent a year and um you know i'm just i'm just the idea of not having farms and farmers and american farms and farmers just petrifies me um and 
you know, we're just trying to utilize our strengths as a way to, you know, make it easier for people to participate in the food system and make it for people easier for consumers to, to find those farmers and find that good food and, and get everybody together at a, at a reasonable price and, you know, just really establish a community food system, you know, the way that, that it has been for ever until, you know, the last world war. And, uh, you know, really get back people back in touch with their food and what it tastes like and what it feels like and, um, you know, really just the joy that's around being a part of those seasons and, and a part of, you know, a part of that land. It sounds very corny, um, but it's very, it's very real. I don't think that sounds corny at all. Um, do you say, would you say that there is a parallel between your experience building wide area networks and in building food distribution logistics networks with Gentle Harvest? Is there some kind of crossover in that experience? Um, you know, I would say that from a very narrow mathematical point of view, I could give you several models that apply in both of them, but I will mm-hmm. tell you that farming is much, 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 much harder than anything I've ever done mm-hmm. as, a, as a mathematician or a computer scientist. Um, you know, in the first place, you don't have this huge governmental and quasi-governmental array of, you know, the, the, the food monopoly aimed at you in mathematics and computer science because mostly they don't know, they, they don't know how to do that. Yeah. Wow. Uh, well, okay, we're going to take a very short break and we'll have a word from our sponsor today and then we'll be back to continue our interview with Sandy Lerner. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. 100 Bogart Street is finally open and ready for Bushwick. 100 Bogart is a brand new, state-of-the-art co-working space that provides turnkey workspaces, including open layout desks, meeting spaces, and furnished private offices. Members have access to top-notch amenities such as custom furniture, high-speed internet, spacious kitchenettes with coffee and tea, printers, scanners, and much more. Alongside their professional work environment, 100 Bogart also provides exclusive educational programming for any curious entrepreneur. Heritage Radio Network has made their new office home at 100 Bogart and will host many events there in the future. 
For more information about their co-working space, visit 100bogart.com and become a member to network, create, and educate. Welcome back. This is HRN Happy Hour, and our guest today is Sandy Lerner. She's an industrialist and farmer and co-founder of Cisco Systems and founder of Urban Decay. And we are in the midst of a discussion about her um, company, Gentle Harvest, and also uh, the practices of farming uh, organic and humanely raised meat at Ayrshire Farms. So, um, Sandy, during the break, we had just a, a brief comment about grass-fed beef, and I'm curious to hear um, what your practices are around feed and and your opinions about what cattle are eating. You know, I think it's one of the things that you all go to food history, but very, very few people really look at farming history. And, you know, there's this whole idea that grass-fed meat is so much better for you, and, you know, it's better for the cows, and it's better for the environment. Well, not if you believe in evolution, because for millennia, people have not been able to hold their livestock over the winter. You know, it's very, very recently we've been able to store enough food so that the majority of the food animals didn't have to be slaughtered in the fall. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's really how, how people, um, as far back, I think, as, you know, we, when we quit being hunter-gatherers, you know, you dry your meat or you dry your fish in preparation for the wintertime. And you keep a very, very limited number of livestock, just breeding livestock over the winter because really that's about all you could manage to, you know, safely and effectively store enough food for. Well, people don't think about this anymore. And, you know, of course, grass-fed has the Packer cartel makes sure that none of these terms get ever defined so that they can use them all. Um, You know, if you think about it, of course, nobody does. Uh, corn is a grass. Mm-hmm. All of the grains that cattle are fed in feedlots are grasses. But besides the fact that you can feed cattle nothing but corn and call it grass-fed because corn is grass, yeah. um, the, the way that all of these animals have been hybridized through the millennia that we have been doing it as human beings and the way that we as human beings have adapted metabolically to eat these animals has been that in the springtime the grass is green and green means protein and as the summer goes in every one of these different climes the grasses will have a season Mm -hmm. and eventually they will die and turn brown and when they die and turn brown they turn into carbohydrates and that makes fat in the animal and the fat in the animal has a has matured in that time, you know, to everything there's a season, has matured in that time. And, you know, like when you were a kid, you could eat everything, chocolate cake all day long, and you didn't gain a pound. And, you know, now you look at it, and it kind of slaps itself <laughs> on the side of, your, side of your thighs, right? It's the same thing with the animals. They mature in that growing season as they have evolved to. And so that by the time that grass turns from protein to grow their bones and their muscles into a carbohydrate to put fat on the meat, that is nature's way of preparing the animal for the wintertime. Mm-hmm. And that is the perfect time to slaughter that animal. Why? Two reasons. The fat in that muscle allows the animal 
to be cooked and to retain some of that natural sort of moisture. Animals that have not been kept on that mature grass, which is what grain is, by the way. Okay, grain is just mature grass. Let's Mm -hmm. be very clear about that. That's all grain is. It's the top of the grass when it turns brown. All right. If they're not allowed to be fed on that mature grass, they won't have that intramuscular fat or marbling, as we call it. It's very hard to cook it, and it gets very dry. But the real reason is that nature has put that fat layer on those animals to get them through the wintertime. And it's that fat layer that allows you to safely store and age meat. Why do you care? Because you've got a refrigerator now for the first time in ever, you know, in our mm-hmm. Existence as, as people, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you care because aging that meat is what makes it really, it's like meat goes through an oxidation process just like wine does. And when you have that fat cover on that meat and you have that fat on the inside of the meat, you can actually age that meat. We age our very, very highest grading animals up to 45 days. Mm-hmm. And you get an absolutely complex, really you know, the bloody taste goes out of it. It it just turns into this absolutely full-bodied, delicious piece of, of meat that doesn't taste like liver. Um, and it's just such a wonderful eating experience. And this is what our forebears thought about meat. Now, they didn't have like a 16-ounce steak. They might have had a 4-ounce steak, but they had a perfect steak. Mm-hmm. And for you know your concerns about people and food and and the rest of it it just breaks my heart to see people slaughtering animals too young before they grow out of this teenage years and they can start to put this beautiful fat on and they are allowed to eat that that really nice mature grass and also as a consumer the stuff that you're being fed because mature grass is expensive um is really pretty awful, and I think you have to be a much, much better cook than almost anybody is these days to really have a good eating experience from that meat. So instead of paying more for this horrible meat, why don't we pay more for meat that's allowed to reach its natural full life cycle? The animal is allowed to live a lot longer. It has more flavor for that reason. The meat has a much, much nicer texture. You can age it, and let's just eat a little bit less of it mm-hmm. at a time. And I love hearing um, you talk about the seasonality in meat, and that's something that we really only hear about when we talk about um, you know, meat that's being raised with care and not as part of a very industrial system. And so uh, I think it's something to always be taking into consideration as we're looking at what to eat when, um, thinking about that, that meat actually does have a season, that different animals and livestock have different breeding seasons and different times when it's appropriate to slaughter them. And um, to think that that seasonal eating of meat also has benefits for health and taste. I mean, we're really here because we enjoy the taste of food and that's so important and such a big part of it. And uh, and also to point out that, you know, not we all know that, um, you know, heritage breeds cost a little bit more per pound maybe than uh, what you might see in the supermarket, but um, you need to use so much less. And then, Sandy, you make a great point that you don't have to be as skilled necessarily in the kitchen, uh, that it, you don't have to do as much to it. So a uh, really, really interesting takeaway. Um, I'd love to redirect a little bit and talk about um, 
something that we chatted about earlier. You uh, made a few references early in our conversation to the dangers of monoculture. And um, then we had a, a little bit of conversation about food security. And I would love to have you talk about um, what are some of the biggest food security issues facing us, especially in this country, and how monoculture plays into that? You know, I think the thing that is the saddest part to me about our government, um, which can get pretty sad, is that we're so far away from having people who run the country who have a clue about mm-hmm. farming. They just It just isn't on their screen. And, you know, they're all worried about all sorts of other things, but the fact that we're hemorrhaging 1% of farmers a year doesn't matter to them. You know, I was just thinking today in preparation for this that I, you know, going back to the Constitution, I don't think that the the men who made that document could imagine a time when in the 90% of people running the government and the courts and the administration of this country would have no clue about farming. You know, in 1800, we were a nation of farmers. Mm -hmm. And in 1900, 50% of us were, and you know, now it's fewer than 2% were not even counted as, a, as an occupation anymore in the census. Um, so not only are we hemorrhaging farmers, and farmers are you know, well into their 60s now as an average age. Their life expectancy is in the 50s. Um, you know, I certainly believe personally that it's because of the chemicals <laughs> um, you know, and the lifestyle. But um, you know, we, we just seem to feel that farms and farmers are very expendable. And even the farms and farmers that we have are not growing food. They're growing food components. You know, they're growing corn or soybeans or something that goes in to make something else that may make something else ultimately. It's a great paper in 1999 that was written, I think, in the state of Wisconsin, Finding Food in Farm Country, and the fact that farmers don't grow food. So if you assume that, you know, there's some basis behind the fact that, you know, we are constantly told that the average thing in the grocery store, you know, travels 2,500 miles to get there. The average bag of flour is three years old. Um, wow. You know, I've, I've been in networks long enough to know that um, the system is quite fragile. And we are absolutely unprepared as a country to face the fact that if there were a terrorist attack on that communications infrastructure, it is so tied into that communications infrastructure, everything from, you know, where things are bought and sold all the way to where the pallet gets dropped off. If that were all to stop, you know, and I'm here sitting in the middle of Manhattan, and I don't know how many people in Manhattan could grow beans if they wanted to. Um, you know, I, I think that's an issue for national security. And the interesting thing I found out about 10 years ago is that the only part of the government that actually seems to be addressing this is the DOD, which, of course, doesn't surprise me because I got my start in life with DOD funding for, you know, the, the Internet. Mm-hmm. Those people are actually seem to, to be genuinely concerned about our national security. They, they really and truly are, um, I think, to a point where it, really surpasses any political interest that they have. I've been very impressed with that group of people. And the same prescient group of people who set us set us up in the 60s to be network leaders of the world are trying very hard in their own small way, I think, to rebuild local food systems with, with farm-to-table. And uh, uh, particularly the um, 
farm to public organization, farm to school. Mm-hmm. So there must be something to it if the DOD is, is trying to fund it. And um, it's something that I just strikes me as a farmer. As, you know, I try to work with the government in Virginia and other people, and they are just absolutely, it's like Teflon running off of them when you try to explain to them that farming is something that is really not optional. <laughs> you know, it's not like you can decide that you don't need it anymore. And by the way, Virginia, it's still your, your number one cash crop. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, to me, it's, it's just so blindingly illogical and, and self-defeating. But, you know, I s- stand there and sputter to myself most of the time. So what, as a population, other than vote, should and can we do? Um, are, are there grants through DOD? How do we access the people who are caring about changing the system and have you know, possibly some of the funding that can make that happen? And how can we network with local food systems and uh, make them stronger and more successful? Well, let me say three things about that. One, the National Organic Program, the NOP, was saved um, by the largest consumer response in history. Um, more people wrote in to um, defeat the attempts by, by Big Ag to thoroughly pervert the NOP than on any other issue. Um, and that brings me to the second point. I think we do not realize in America that the biggest weapon on the planet is the American consumer. For all the misinformation about, you know, make America great again. America is great. We are still the number one economy. And the American consumer has the power to move this planet. And all you have to do is point three, just decide you're not going to do it that way anymore. And, you know, the thing that really astonishes me, because I spend a lot of my time as an organic farmer, I, I went and invested very heavily in 18th and 19th century farming books because they had to farm organically. You know, there was no Monsanto. You know, there was more, no, no Dow Chemical, no Roundup. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and really trying to figure out all the things that my grandfather, I think, probably, he, he forgot more than I will ever know about farming with the seasons and, oh, you know, when the redbud tree comes out, you plant your wheat or whatever. Um, you know, the idea that we, as a nation of farmers, really the most revolutionary thing I think that you can do as an American is learn how to farm. Grow something on your window. Everybody can grow a box of potatoes. You know, just grow something. You know, if people would just basically do what they had to do in England in the Second World War because they found out what happens when you become a net food importer, which, by the way, I believe that we are. Um, The USDA hides those statistics and you can't really tell. And by the way, meat is not counted as an import. Um, they found out what happens when you're a net food importer and you do not have a net domestic, very robust food system. I think that the, the most revolutionary act that, as a nation of farmers that we were when we started would be to go back to being a farmer. And everybody goes, oh, well, I live in Manhattan. You know, there's a heck of a lot of farming you can do in a, in a very small space, and Mother Nature is micro-optimized. You know, evolution is, and it's been that way for a long time. Mm-hmm. And if you just raise yourself somewhat, even a little, away from that dependency, it would make, and we all did it, 
it would make a huge dislocation in, in the way that business is as usual here. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. I, uh, as a small hydroponic farmer in Manhattan, can <laughs> really appreciate that. But um, to, to wrap that up, everybody, please grow something. Uh, that's uh, a refrain that we hear often on the station, and I really agree with you that that can make a really strong difference. So um, with that, Sandy, I want to say thank you. And can you tell our listeners where they can learn more about Gentle Harvest and about your farm, any social media handles they should be following? Gentleharvest.com. Um, there you'll find links to Ayrshire Farm and uh, all the other things that as a farm we try to engage in, such as uh, humane husbandry. We're also, uh, and have been from the word go, predator friendly. Mm-hmm. Uh, we believe that the predators are good for our farm. You know, I get 24 tons of feet a week. I would be awash in rats if it weren't for all of my, my wonderful raptors. And, and uh, we, we bring bobcats in from the local wow, wildlife cool. rescue. Um, so we've been predator-friendly from the word go. Um, we've n- recently become uh, the first four-star um, Green Restaurant Association um, winner of the General Harvest Store in Marshall, Virginia. Very proud of that. So I think we try to really walk the talk and talk the walk and, um, you know, where it's possible to live gently and harvest gently and harvest kindly. Um, you know, I, I don't have to do this. Um, it's nice to be in a position, I think, where you can say, well, you can't do this. Uh, we, seem, we seem to be doing it, not that we're not still learning <laughs> a lot. Um, but uh, every day in every way, we're getting better. Congratulations, and thank you again. It's amazing. We're going to wrap up with a couple of fun, quick trivia questions. Don't worry. Um, you can also phone a friend. We've got Jordan in the studio and David in the booth. Um, so just a few quick ones here. Um, this one I, I really love, uh, which is that many modern cosmetics make use of an unusual organic substance to add shimmer to lipstick and eyeshadow. Do you know what the uh, shiny, shimmery material is? Did you say organic? Mm-hmm. Meaning uh, made of life. Oh, gee, no, I would, have, I would have thought mica. I don't know that one. Um, it is called, uh, I'll give you a hint. It's often called pearl essence. It comes from the sea. It's, um, do you know? Mother of Pearl? No. no. Yeah, I was thinking stones and mm-hmm. no, I would think sand and things like that. Um, it's fish scales. Well, oh, I fish would have scales. thought Mother of Pearl too, but I guess yeah. that's too expensive well, that's and cool. hard to grind up. Yeah. Um, okay. Now we have a cow question. If you breed an Angus with a Hereford, what will you have? Black, white face. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) A better animal. Okay. (laughs) You beat me on that one. I'm like having flashbacks to my freshman year of college animal science 101 class, and I was like going through the Rolodex of the cows. (laughs) Free Ray Cross is actually actually better cross. Wow. Um, Okay, and uh, last one. Uh, We're getting deep into the cow anatomy here um how many part compartments does a cow have in its stomach four okay can you name them for bonus credit chocolate um vanilla um uh rice pudding uh-huh and uh, milkshake <laughs> 
I thought only the brown cows had the chocolate ah. on though. Every cow at the base of it's a brown cow. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to bring us to the end of our happy hour today. Sandy, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an honor having you. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks. And I'm glad to see young people really trying to get to the bottom of this and make some change. Thanks so much. And uh, big thanks today to Jordan Werner for joining me in the studio. You're welcome. Thanks, David. Always our stalwart engineer. Always. And uh, Kat, I hope you're having fun out there. Thanks also to Liz Mystic, who's our producer for today. And I hope we'll see you next week on HR and Happy Hour. It's going to be our last episode of our fall season. And then we are uh, taking a quote-unquote break uh, for the holidays. That's, uh, you know, for us in the office, that's when we do our budget and wrap up our fundraising drive and all kinds of busy and fun things that are happening over there. So you guys can take a break. We'll be working, uh, but we'll see you back in January. But please join us next Thursday, December 14th, last show. And um, our Charity Buzz auctions just wrapped up, but there are still a few more ways to support Heritage Radio Network. Once again, thank you all for your generosity this season. And I hope that if you're not already, you'll become a member at our website, heritageradionetwork.org. See you soon. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. HRN Happy Hour is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage.